Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 205, New Year's edition. Woo! In a few hours. In a few hours, it will be 2020. Well, you will be listening in 2020. Yes. We are recording in 19. Yes. Uh, are you one of those 2020 is a new decade or 2021 is a new decade? I'm the I'm the person that a decade is a rolling uh, window of ten years, so you can choose when it starts and when it ends. I like that. <laughs> no, honestly, I'm I'm one of those people where the, yeah, like I, in my opinion, yes, tw- uh, 2020 is a new decade. In my opinion, I would agree. Yeah, I actually agree with both those statements. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's cleaner if you just say 2020 is a new decade. Yeah, yeah, but whatever. I mean, who cares really? This year we have. Perfect New Year glasses. Because you have two zeros to look out of. Uh, I, well, okay, but I guess the two has to be in between your, like, where your yeah, nose is. Yeah, the two is, is the, right? uh, one of the bridges, yeah. I think 2000 was, like, the best. 2000 was the best? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, any of uh, uh, the aughts, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess any of the aughts, right? Is that what we call them now? The aughts is 2000 the to oddies. 2009? What was yeah, that? The oddies. The oddies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we bring in the Roaring Twenties back, or not? Who knows? What the MacFab Engineering Podcast, all by yes. ourselves? Yes, all by ourselves. Yeah, and our amazing listeners with up upbeat jazz and those new kids dancing. Yes, yeah. I expect you to wear a flapper dress next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I'm the flapper. <laughs> I guess I'm the one with the longer hair. Yep. <laughs> All right, let's get started. Um, yeah. Actually, I want to say one more thing. Uh, I wanted to thank all the listeners this year for listening to us growing a podcast, making it better. Um, and if uh, you haven't listened to it yet, we did ha- do a Star Wars episode last week. And if you've watched episode nine, go listen to it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Steve and I very enjoyed doing the Star Wars episode. So get those download numbers up. We actually we look forward to the Star Wars episodes, and we. Uh, this one, we were talking about it in summer. Yes. I mean, like, talking about it, not planning, obviously. No, we were we were at planning topics. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, planning topics, like, in other words, we're drinking beers and be like, how great would it be if we talked about this and, you know, things like That's that. That's true. That's true. I still call that planning. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. No, it's something that we look forward to every year, for sure. And uh, I'll, I mean, I'll put you can way, look Steven. forward to the fact that there will be a Star Wars episode next year, for sure. Yes. I'll put it this way. If salespeople can call golfing business we can call drinking beer and come up with ideas planning oh well I, it's going on my expense report then there you go <laughs> <laughs> all right let's get going what's uh yeah. what is up parker all right so today which is what we're recording this episode uh the 31st uh we launched a new pcb specification update at macfab and this is like a long time coming <laughs> We've basically, instead of the normal kind of PCB tab we used to have for specifications, which had like layer count and how thick you wanted it and stuff like that, it now has a lot more stuff in it. Um, you can do stack ups, advanced via management, so like you can do blind buried vias, uh, URL logo control, surface finishes. Uh, what else is there in there? Um, like copper weights, you can do custom copper weights, all that stuff. Um, it's kind of, we revamped the entire PCB specification page. 
So go check that out. Um, so we basically also expanded like how many specifications we can like quote automatically. So we've been working with our like PCB vendors like nonstop for the past couple months to get that going. Um, but there is still some things in there that like when you select them, it says when you need a custom quote. But um, so now you just click a button and it like lets us know that you need a custom quote. So it's kind of cool. So it's been a while. Uh, gosh, probably six or so months since I've logged into the MacFab interface to go look at a PCB. So I, I pulled up um, my MacroAmp PCB that I ordered from and uh, just out of curiosity. So there's there's a looks like to me there's a new button in the bottom right that has the Macrofab logo. By the way, I'm not I'm totally not trying to make this like a sale for Macrofab. I'm I'm curious. <laughs> I, I'm absolutely curious here. But there's like that's cool because like if you click on that, there's like um, all kinds of stuff about you can go to the knowledge base. Um, oh yeah, yeah. That's a, right from I the PC. Forgot about tab. that. That's a new thing that Joey, who's our Product manager, I want to say, is his title. He mm. he put that in there, so it links to our knowledge base. So like, it's context sensitive. So like, if you're on like the bill of materials page, it will like, if you click that button, it will have information about the bill of material page, that's like pulled from the knowledge base. Yeah, that's super so, nice. Um, but yeah, the, the PC specifications page is just launched, like about forty five minutes ago. Okay. <laughs> Well, okay, here's uh, – previously, if you clicked on the PCB specifications, you would get, like, pull-down stuff about just, like, here's my layers and things. And this actually takes you to a – I mean, it's still the same page, but it takes you to a different view that's full page here. That's cool because um, – okay, so I'm looking at this, and there's – like, you can select the standard or extended or all this other stuff, and then it actually gives a description of them, which is nice because previously it was just, like – which one do you want? You had to go to the knowledge base to find it out. Yes, exactly. Cool. And the funny thing is that is uh, from our previous interface, which was like three plus years ago now. So we took some design elements from that interface that people really liked and brought it into the advanced tab, so to speak. The advanced PCB specification tab. So... Um Okay, so there's a whole tab in here about vias, uh, and you can basically select, uh, guys, a bunch of different options. Let's see here. Yeah. Plated through whole vias. Oh, and then you upload drill files f specifically for each t uh, type. Like, if in your design files you have a plugged one, you would have a whole layer of just plugged vias and things? Correct. Yeah. Cool. And uh, and also supports blind and buried there too. So you can, if you upload a buried via drill file, you can say, "Hey, this is buried vias," and it goes from this layer to this layer. And it will actually draw. It has like a diagram there, and mm. it actually will draw it out there too. So That's it actually will give you a neat. cutaway uh, of the vias. Very cool. Yeah. Then uh, on the impedance tab, you can upload impedance control data instead of just saying, yes, impedance control. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you can actually upload impedance control stuff in like, uh, like an assembly dock or something. You can upload there. Okay. Whereas before it was like, yes. Yeah, no, the that. answer was just yes or no. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is really cool. Uh, it's, it's cool to see it kind of like grow into um, having a bit more... Um, to being Control. a little bit more in depth in there, and yeah. I, I, I like, like I was saying, I was, I. It seems really simple, 
but you know sometimes it takes a long time to implement it but having descriptions of things right on the page like when i click extended drill directly underneath it it says decrease minimum drill size to four mil like i get what mm -hmm. that means right there yep and um the cool thing with is is there's a lot of tool tips and stuff now too i don't think all, that whole section is tool tipped out because it seriously came out today <laughs> and then like 15 minutes later i launched like the basic documentation for it yeah <laughs> And so then Joey's got to go in, take my documentation, making the tooltips, all that good stuff. So it it, it looks like um so the tooltips are based on um, some information bubbles that are next to the text. So some of the items have it, but most of them don't. But most of them don't necessarily need it. That's true. So but more. But yeah, no. The, hey, that's great. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Thanks. Um. So that went out today. Also, I got notification uh, yesterday that the Pentator Rev 2 PCBs arrived at the fab. And so I got a picture of those. Those were pretty cool. Um, I'm, I'm curious. So you sent the picture off to me, um, and you went with clear solder mask on it? Yeah, I, I've been doing my prototypes. Well, only if the prototypes are basically the, quote, production class that we have at MacroFab. Because there's just there's so many parts on them that they basically get bumped off the uh, prototype class, and so then I can just pick the solder mask color um, for free, free in quotes, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. And uh, so I pick clear. I, I like doing clear for prototypes. Yeah, um, I I'm a big fan of that. Also, uh, like make establish with your engineering team a color that is a prototype, and never break that rule. I, mm -hmm. I always like doing it that way. Um, I would just have done red if, if, the, if that PCB fit into the prototype class that we have. I would have done that because it would have been less expensive. But uh, yeah, I ordered four of those, and it just how many parts are on those boards? It bumped it out of that class. So oh, nice. And also, it was a six-layer board. No, no, those are four-layer. Yeah, those are four-layer boards now. Yeah. So you don't have a whole layer dedicated to fifty volts. No, no. I wish. That would be nice. <laughs> actually, I don't money. think the inner... That would be... It's actually got like... Because that whole area of that PCB is just for high voltage. Mm. So it's actually got multiple parallel traces in there that are via stitched together and stuff. Hmm. That whole section. So yeah, there is actually... I would say, yes, it's got a section of a plane dedicated to 50 volts. Multiple planes. Right, but it's not like an entire layer with ginormous traces like you did no, on no, the not like other a one. Ground pour or a three point three volt pour. Yeah, yeah, because that board's got signal three point three ground, then signal again, and then in the fifty, the high voltage section, it's got one layer's got control, one's the return, and then there's um, two fifty volt uh, traces or planes, I guess. Cool. So. And that was done because the inner layers are the 50 volts and um, inner layers have less uh, heat capacity. Meaning that the same amount of current on an internal layer is going to heat it up more than an external trace on like the bottom layer. So the bottom layer was like the ground returns for the solenoids. And those are, they were, you know, spec'd at whatever I needed them to be spec'd at. Um, but on the inner, they had to be like twice as big because you had to dissipate all that heat still. And so I just made them uh, the same width, but just made them double them up, basically. 
Hmm. So I effectively made them twice as wide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's what I did on the pin heck, and it worked great. Never cool. had any heat issues with those boards. So are you going to get those in two weeks or so? They should be assembled by next podcast. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool to have them for the podcast, but it might not be for the podcast. It might be the week after that. Okay. So, um, Are you actually going to throw these ones in a machine, or are these just going to be bench units? They are going to go into machines like the last one. Cool. So we're going to uh, put all the PTH parts on them, ship them out, and um, I think the one's going to be a bench unit pretty much because it's going to the person who's helping us do all the high-level software for Mission Pinball Framework. And then, um, so that would probably be a bench unit, but I'm like, yeah, make your own game with it. Throw it in a machine. Abuse it. We need to break it before we go to production. <laughs> for sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I'm assuming you're planning on going to production in 2020 sometime, right? Yeah, we're planning on that probably... Later in 2020. June-ish. Okay. That's yeah. what we're aiming for. So we're well ahead of schedule on the prototypes, though. So oh, As long as good. we don't have to have another spin unexpectedly. But oh, so you Rev think, one the, you think this is the last one before production? We'll probably have one more minor rev of just changing some of the connectors to be more specific. Mm-hmm. Um, like the example I give for that is like for the ball trough, it's like the same. Uh, the ball trough has like, the, it's the same unit in every pinball machine that we are working on. Right. And so we want to have a dedicated connector for it instead of having like basically use four opto connectors because it's got four optos on it. Instead of using four opto connectors, just have one connector that's all the same signals, basically. So you just reduce how much part count you have and yeah. like your wiring harness and all that stuff. Make it easier for like, if you need to take the ball trough out, have to unplug four plugs and then remember which ones they go back in. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a pain. Get a little anno- annoying fast. <laughs> So, other other than the fact that prototype runs are expensive, I'm a big fan of doing multiple prototype runs. Just because every time you do it, they always uncover something, you know. Yes, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's actually given the fact that Rev One worked great. Mm. We only had one green wire, and um, yeah, I, I expect Rev Two to not have any real big issues. We'll see though. Something bad could happen. <laughs> well, I mean, you Actually, didn't, didn't, you didn't do didn't, any significant changes, though, right? No, I didn't. Um, I moved some stuff around, though. But I didn't notice that I didn't change for one trace. So Rev three is that's the first first <laughs> issue I fixed already was you, you've, you've already trace. started Rev three. Oh, of course, but I saw that I'm like, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anytime I see a board with ninety degrees, like it, I can't help but think that like. Why didn't you spend the time to, to to miter them? You know, they just look nicer. But the thing is, it's just it's just it's one spot. Yeah. Of the board, I just overlooked when I was going through because basically I'll draw everything ninety first, and then I go back and chain for everything. Oh, do you really? Okay. That way, because well, Eagle they added this thing. This is just be the case in old Eagle where mm-hmm. like it was really hard if you moved a part with chain for edges, it couldn't keep the chain for edges. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Because mm-hmm. oh, we were yeah. talking about this uh, dip trace kept keeps them. Yeah. So if you move apart, it will like kind of redraw the chain for edges with you. It, it does a best guess. Yeah. 
So Eagle didn't do that. So if you moved apart, it would just make that chain for a weird angle now. And so I got into the habit of just drawing everything as 90s because then you could move stuff easier because everything would keep the 90 and then chain for later. They added this thing called like um, where it will like do its best guess to do yeah. it. Yeah. But it, it always fucks up. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, my method, I just, I don't know. For some reason, it just works. That that method works for me now. Um, so. Yeah, okay. Uh it's some somewhat of a tangent here. Do you have a, uh, I guess, a, sort of like a methodology, or do you have like a a sequence of events that you do when making a PCB? Oh yeah, who doesn't? I don't know. I mean, like I've seen some people who don't. Like, so what? What is your uh, what is your method? So we're talking like post schematic, right? Like you've thrown the ball over the fence. Like your schematic is done. You throw the ball over to the fence and into layout. What are the list of things that you do to complete a layout? Uh, so put all the parts that need to be in a certain spot first, right? So like connectors for the and this all depends on your what you're designing, right? Your product because like in a in a uh, pedal, it's like oh the quarter inch jacks have to be in certain spots right, to make it right, work. Right, right. Yeah, you, you, your <laughs> um, mechanically constrained items, you've placed those first. Those are placed first. Um, in this case, in the pinball controller, it was all the connectors need to be placed on the edge as best as possible, and then it needs mounting holes. And so the second thing I did was mounting holes. And to make sure I had enough space for the mounting holes, because um, it's not just the screw, you also need the tool needs to be able to get there. And you need to make sure that, hey, if you have the screw there or the screwdriver and you, let's say you tilted the screwdriver a little bit, are you going to hit 50 volts? Stuff like that. You got to think about. Sure. Um, do that. That's step one. Step two is put parts. So use the rat lines and then, uh, or airlines, depending on what your EDA tool calls them and put them. I don't think I, Eagle calls them airlines. What does dip trace call them? Rat lines. Rat lines, yeah. So I've always called them rat lines, but then Eagle calls them airlines, so whatever. I was so confused the other day when I when I was dealing with a customer's product and, and it was throwing warnings about I think they called them air stubs. Air stubs, yeah, that's another one. Yeah, and I was had. like, what the hell is an air stub? Yeah. <laughs> Which is just like it's a trace within a pad kind of it's like an incomplete trace that yeah. exists within a piece of copper that that it won't hurt anything it yeah but, it's just but, letting you know that hey you can it's a warning like, yeah yeah just clean up your shit man <laughs> that's what it's asking you to do yeah no it really is it's like <laughs> come on man come on <laughs> yeah um so for then put all the parts where they need to go like near the connectors and that's your design constraint so in this case like we use a lot of shift registers and a lot of pull-ups and pull-downs and so we i basically took those parts and then like okay this shift register needs these pull-ups and this capacitor. Bundled all those together next to all the connectors, all that stuff. And then I started laying out one because all of them had kind of the same layout. So I laid one out and then, of course, go back to the schematic and be like, oh, if I routed it or it's connected it up this way, it makes the routing cleaner. Yeah, do that back and forth a couple times and then you finally settle on, okay, that's the most optimal way to route something. And then route everything 90. And then this is with a four-layer board. Okay. Um, so route all the signals first as much as you can on one layer. 
then uh, since I since I mostly do digital things, most of the time it's you you plunge to the ground and you plunge to your voltage, and then if you need the back plane, you got that for weird signals that have to like cross like the entire board for some reason because um, you always get a couple of those right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's typically the rundown. Kind of basic, but you know I don't do. Some people will look at the pin hell, uh, the the the, 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 the pin hell board, uh, the pentatar board, and be like, "Oh yeah, it's pretty complicated." I'm like, "Well, if you really break it down, it's not super complicated." It it's looks complicated of, when you look at it as a whole, for yeah, sure. Yeah, but you break down like the the shift register section. It's like, yeah. oh, it's got pull ups for each line. It's yeah. got an inline series resistor for you know snubbing uh, weird currents and ESD, mm. and then it's control lines, right. and then a cap. So it's right. like, okay, that times 20 <laughs> is is like half the board. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And then like the microcontrollers just, you know, I've worked with the AT Sam D 21 a lot. And so I'm like, oh, I already know that my schematic on that part works. So plop that down around the same way with the crystal in the right, in the right spot. Um, I'm always a big fan of when you're routing microcontrollers, is to like go to the dash sheet and count how many VCC and ground pins does it have on on its pinouts, right? And if the VCC and ground pin are next to each other, that's like a I call that like a unit, a power unit, where there's one bypass cap for it. Yeah, so you have one bypass cap for that unit, right? right. So that's if the pins are next to each other. If they're separated out, then I tend to go okay. If they're more than like four or five pins away from each other they get their own bypass caps because mm-hmm. they're far enough away where you do start to get some impedance in there on the, on the lines. Um, and so, yeah, so like I think the AT Sam D has got like six or s- six or seven bypass caps on it, which a lot of people would be like, that's way overkill. I'm like, yeah, it's overkill, but guess what? It works the first time every single time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've I've been putting bypass cap anytime anytime there's a power pin, there's, it gets yeah. a bypass cap. It's it, and I consider it lucky if there's a ground pin next to it because then you can put the cap. Because uh, I use the 0402 uh, bypass. Okay, so caps. you you did I I went 0603 on this one. Okay, um, but if you're 0402, you can even get you can uh, squeeze you, them right up on there, and it's that's yeah. the best. And actually, yeah, that is better. Um, the small that's the thing people don't think about is the smaller part allows you to shove it closer to the pins. And so you have, you even have less inductance and impedance mm-hmm. on that, that network. So to speak, that power network. Right. Right. Um, that's why like, if you have a, a really fancy BGA and you turn it over and it's got like 80 bazillion bypass caps on the bottom <laughs> of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's got acne on the back of the board. Yeah. Yeah. Look at the back of like a graphics of graphics card or something. Oh, those are insane. It's, yeah. It's got tons of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, I always err on the side of more bypass caps, the better in terms of that and making sure they're close as possible to the pins. Um, like I haven't have them on like the shift registers and stuff, even though technically they probably don't need them because we, mm-hmm. you drive them so slow, but it's like, Hey, you know, in the overall scheme of things per unit, it's like five cents. So, and I'm, this is not a super price conscious board. Where like mm-hmm. we're building millions of these things so that one capacitor it's like that olive in American Airlines and their salads. Right. 
where they removed one olive and they saved like eight billion or eight million dollars or something eight like that. Eight billion like, dollars worth of olives. Yeah, olives <laughs> eight million all uh, eight million dollars olives, something yeah. like that. It's like that's ridiculous. That's just how many people eat salads on airplanes, which boggles my mind. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So if you're not like being counting that low, yeah. Then yeah, just use as many as you want need. Right. Yeah. One per power. Yeah. Pack. I wonder if there's like a limit to that though. Like, what if you? Oh, we could write a script to do this. And an eagle. What if you made it so that like you laid out your whole board, right? And then you press the button, and it populated 042.1 microfarad caps anywhere it could. <laughs> and then well, on the backside too. I mean, uh, the 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 limit would be what your power supply can handle in terms of capacitive loading, right? Yeah, right when it turns on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it would, surge. Yeah, it would be a disgusting <laughs> surge that goes through. The... <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, you should you should do that. The smoothest board ever. <laughs> you know, one of the things I've I've started doing, um, especially because a lot of the boards that I design now all fit within like a a certain scheme. Um, yeah. they like there's like a known size PCB before I even start the project. Yeah, you have an enclosure that you're designing to. Right. Yeah. Well, and the enclosure is is it has thick like yeah, it gets wider, but it but it gets wider by fixed widths. So yeah, yeah. like I know it's going to be uh, you know, one and a half inches or something. So um the what I've started doing recently is the the first two things that I do the mechanical items are are almost always predetermined before I even get to the PCB because we we do draw like artwork, yeah. so we know where like knobs and things are going to go. So I don't even start with the mechanical stuff. I start with the board outline. I start with my mouse bites, and I start by placing my fiducials on the board. Uh, those three items I place there, and then I set up my clearances around all of those items, such that before I even begin placing anything down, I already have my don't place around here areas. Yeah, it I've, sounds like at that point you have like 50% of the board you can't even play with. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it is somewhat restrictive, <laughs> but, but what's nice about that is like I've had a couple of boards where I laid the entire board out and it was gorgeous and then i didn't have fids and mouse bites and i put those in uh, and i was violating crap you know so then i had to go back and fix it and i was like why don't i just start with those because i always always generally know where my mouse bites and i i for sure know where my fids are gonna go um so i i put those down and if you it's funny because if you start with the constraint of i'm not going to place in these areas um then like it's never even an option in your mind and yeah you, you just get it right the first time yeah that and that and that same regard is mounting holes going that as well that's what i yeah that's what oh I yeah did. for sure mounting it's making sure you have mounting holes yeah like where you need them to go um because this one is like okay each big connector needs a mounting hole next to him because someone's going to be yanking on this like this connector in the dark and you don't want to rip the board out um, I guess what I could have done better is I could have put keep outs around the connectors for bypass caps. I just did that just because I know not to put a bypass or a, capac a ceramic capacitor next to a connector or a mounting hole. But, um, yeah, that could be something you could add in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, s something that I think is, is really important to kind of keep in mind, and it's a lot of people might roll their eyes, eyes at this because it's a little bit obvious, but it's not always obvious. Um, 
keep in mind, like if you're doing mounting holes, like, like try to have a good understanding of what the hardware is going to be that goes through that hole beforehand. Research like clearances for whatever mounting hardware is going to go through there, and then know beforehand what head of the hardware is going to go through there and make your clearances and keep outs appropriate for the head. Because, I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever done it, but I've made the mistake before of, like, not researching the right size of a pan head screw and having something too close to the pan head screw that went through the hole. I got the hole right, but I didn't put clearances for the for the screw. I haven't had a problem with the head. I've had a problem with tools. Yeah, sure. Is um, I On the first production pin hack board, which is, like, Rev 4 pin hack. So this is, like, seven ago. years ago at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um. One of the screws was too close to a connector, and we used hex like computer screws, so they had Phillips with the hex head on it. And that one was the only one you had to have a Phillips for, because hmm. the the socket didn't fit over because the, the connector was too close. But then we fixed that next rev, and then everything was whole hunky dory. Yeah, so that that's one of the things. Like I have a a I have a footprint for that connector for that mounting hole that is. This is the screw we use with this head, and this is the diameter of the tool. The tool clearance is like half an inch, wow. which is ginormous. That's huge. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, someone's poking at it with a screwdriver in, in the dark. You know, the worst thing that can happen is they miss with the tool, and it goes into 50 volts, or it goes into a bypass cap, or it goes into a chip and flicks the chip off. Yeah. Like, that's... Yeah, a lot of people commit um, grand PCB... <laughs> like failure failure yeah well i didn't want to use failure i couldn't come up with a word for that you know um i made a mistake earlier this year on a board luckily it wasn't a big mistake but um there's uh, there was a board that had three different styles of power connection headers that go on it and they are like one was a ribbon one was like flying cables to a header and and then a, a third molex style and I put all three of these on the edge of the board, and I gave them space in between each other, but I didn't, like, there was plenty of space between the, the, the male connector, but I didn't mm -hmm. didn't fully pay attention to the female connector. Uh, and the female connector was a lot wider for each one of these than the male connector. So it, it, it was impossible to have um, all of these cables connected at the same time. Now, technically, for this circuit, you should never have more than one uh, installed at the same time. Uh, like the reason why you would ever do that is to daisy chain power from one circuit mm -hmm. board to another, but that's sort of a no, no. There's just some like really rare cases where some people want to do that. So it wasn't an issue because it was one of those things where it's like, well, you shouldn't do that anyway, but I, you know, something I had to fix. And it was just like, I, on my board, like I didn't have any DRC errors because my connectors aren't touching, but I didn't think about the connector that mates with it. And that was bigger. It's yep. like, ah, damn it. <laughs> you make mistakes, you move on. Yep. Or a Rev 2. Yeah, that's right. But the problem with those mistakes is they're kind of impossible to fix. It's not like, oh, you forget a trace or something's wired up wrong. You can cut some traces, do some soldering. This is just like, well, shit. No, that's a, that's a Rev 2 thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a Rev 2 thing. As, as AVE would say, there's always enough time to fix it in Rev 2. <laughs> <laughs> too bad we can't fix it in post yeah that's for sure yeah Th this is Hi, this Steven. is why this is why double e's are are kind of anal about 
like their board designs and stuff, you know? Is this why we can't trust people with our footprints? No. Yeah, you cannot trust. Yeah, for sure. Like, you, if, <laughs> if, if everyone, you, you pull up some random person's footprint and you see an outline, do you trust that outline to actually be the outline of the part? Yep. Yeah. I, sh I shouldn't have even trusted mine. <laughs> yeah, it's probably why every single hardware engineer, we talked about this before, yeah. every single hardware engineer has, like, their own, like, this is my library. I this is my sacred perfect. library. It's perfect. It's, it's like it's the perfect Jedi Tufts. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So, okay, uh, so what have you been working on? Um, similar to you, actually, you, you kind of jumped onto the, the Pinotar Rev 2. Um, I kind of moved on uh, to doing what, what uh, I call the Hellhound preamp. Uh, this is actually a project that, that Roz, who was on the Star Wars episode, and he's been a guest before, he and I have been working on this for months and months. Um, I, like a good chunk of 2019, we were doing development, and um, it sort of culminated with the goal that we'd have it done by the end of the year. So I sort of rushed and jumped over to this just because like, I wanted to meet our goals. But luckily, <laughs> like, like my brewery. <clears throat> hey, is that done? You have a few hours. So it's oh, it's getting there. It's not going to be done next hour. So. <laughs> it's getting there. I like that. That that's great. It's actually pretty close. You, you know, okay. So Parker's been sending me images for the past few weeks of of stuff. He's making lots of progress. This is not yeah. one of those ones where it's like just in in theory. He is making a lot of progress. <laughs> just in theory. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah. So the Hellhound was a uh, it's a it's a tube preamp that I that I've been working on. But I did everything um, all on a single PCB with a right angle billboard style uh, PCB to fit within a rack mount unit. Um, the prototype, the initial prototype for it, um, well, I talked about back in episode 199, and um, I got boards since then that include the power supply because that, that first prototype I was just running off of a benchtop power supply. And I did, I did sort of a, a dual transformer back-to-back -back design that was a step down to the low voltage for the heaters and then using that to step up to the high voltage stuff. And uh, what I'm super excited about is it actually works really, really well. And the uh, the transformers are in generally they're in close proximity to a lot of pretty sensitive audio stuff. So I was kind of worried about coupling and things like that. And I've got virtually zero coupling on it. So oh, that's um, cool. I was... I was kind of like sweating it there because I'm just like, I don't know if this is like a lot of that stuff. You kind of have to just like do best practice and then build it and find out, you know. And so that worked out really well. I did and make so, um, um, stop you real quick. I yeah. think I remember back in 199, you were talking about that dual transformer setup. Yeah. And the only downside to that really is like it's inefficient, right? It's it's yeah it's very inefficient but it's cheap and it gets the job done and um, because I'm not I'm not trying to sell this this is more of a prototyping platform um, I just wanted a power supply that I could plug into mains and be able to ship it to Roz up in Connecticut and just have him be able to play with it because he doesn't have a high voltage power supply on his bench so yeah it was mainly for um, inefficient uh, I mean cheap but yet inefficient and the thing is the so. What I'm doing is I'm I'm taking one transformer where I'm it's a step down transformer and then I'm reversing another transformer so I'm taking the secondaries of one and plugging that into the secondaries of a, of another and then boosting that up so I'm using the primaries of another transformer as its output and one of the things that kind of sucks about that is the 
especially for these flat pack transformers that I got, they're triad transformers that you can find on Mauser. The um, the secondaries are regulated pretty well, whereas the primaries are not regulated well. Um, so if you reverse a transformer and put voltage as an input into its secondaries and the primary is not regulated, then you're sort of not going to get what you're looking for. And that's what I found out. But I was, you know, I was trying to shoot the side of a building with a shotgun on this kind of thing. I just needed high voltage. I didn't really yeah. even care what it was because on my initial prototype, I, I played with it and I swept the voltage from 250 to 400 volts. And there was, virtually no difference between that entire range so as long as i hit anywhere in that range i was good and i totally yeah. hit within that range so uh but the thing is i did use like a calculator and i did simulate the power supply and i'm like 50 volts off of what i thought i was going to be on <laughs> and mainly mainly that's due to the fact that the the primaries on these transformers are not regulated the same yeah. way that the secondaries are so whatever it still works <laughs> that's all yes. i care about um, I, I made a mistake, however, like, and maybe mistake's not the right word. I just didn't, I didn't fully, uh, account for the ripple that was going to be on it. So I, I did a, you, right after the rectifier, I had about 200 millivolts. No, nah, not even probably about 150 millivolts of ripple, which isn't that much, but it was coupled through a buffer directly to the output. So the output has a, a, a low level. 120 hertz hum and and like i i looked at the ripple on my uh, scope and it's not like a dirty hash it's not like real choppy it's a smooth ripple so it's 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 clearly capacitor charging uh stuff so mm -hmm. the good thing is uh pretty i actually have two capacitors in parallel right on that that output so i was able to cut the trace in between them and then build a gyrator circuit in between those two caps and just basically simulate like a I don't know, like a 50 Henry choke in between them. <laughs> like it's a monster choke and it just obliterated the noise. So super easy. <laughs> and that's sort of what the whole idea of these prototype things are uh, for, which, um, yeah, so yeah. we talked about gyrators back in episode 173 and something like that. Yeah. When it, uh, when it comes down to dealing with these kinds of circuits, if you have a bunch of extra voltage to play with, which I do, and you don't mind getting rid of a few volts here and there, like gyrators are actually really, really convenient and they only take a few components. And in terms of like connecting a gyrator and a capacitor together, you get an LC circuit, which you can tune to have phenomenal filtering. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, keep that in mind, uh, research gyrators, they're super useful for this kind of stuff. You know, it might be pretty good to um, like design a a uh, a gyrator circuit that's kind of like a general purpose one. Yeah. Like, and make it a PCB. Yeah. And then that way you can like you you can populate what parts you need for what values, right? And then you can just kind of like graft that onto whatever project you're working on. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. The gyrators will be assimilating. You know, I actually have a customer that I'm doing a design for right now, and um, they have uh, they have a power supply that has an inductor in it, and the inductor is kind of an annoying value. And I was considering putting a um, an, a gyrator in there, especially because if you tune it, the uh, the impedance of the the gyrator simulating the choke and the the following capacitor, if you tune it just right, you can get like massive amounts of reduction of ripple 
right there. But the thing is, like, it's probably not even necessary because these these projects are being um, powered off of an already clean supply. So it's just I don't know. It's way overkill. I think it, yeah. it, it makes a lot of sense directly after a rectifier, especially in these kinds of applications that I did with this Hellhound preamp. So um, that yeah, that would that was fun having to hunt down noise because at first when i when i first fired everything up and i turned it on i thought it was coupling from the transformers and i'm like oh well that means rev 2 you know like there's nothing you can i'm not this i was i was going through my head it was like okay how do i make a tinfoil hat and ground it around my transformers and try to get rid of you know whatever e-field is flowing around no no it just ended up being power supply noise which now that I look back at it, I was like, wow, I put way too low of a capacitor on the right after the rectifier. It's plenty big enough in general, but for this application, it it could have been bigger. And and, mm-hmm. and you know, so the thing is like also if you have noise, just making whatever your reservoir capacitor after your rectifier, making that bigger isn't necessarily uh, like that doesn't solve a lot of issues because no you'd be surprised at how big you have to make it to get rid of noise. So coming up with a more active solution um, can actually be a lot cheaper and smaller and a lot easier. So yeah, check out gyrators. They're pretty cool. So um, one of the other things that uh, I installed in this, and I talked about it in some previous episodes was a, uh, a four band EQ that began its life purely as a spice simulation. And uh, that, well, that EQ actually includes a couple of gyrators also to to um, uh, actually isolate all the bands in there. But the uh, the cool thing was I I actually pulled up the spice simulations, reran all all of the the, the plots, and then I put this uh, preamp on my scope and I set the scope such that so I there's ten divisions of width across my scope, so I put a sine wave into it and I swept the sine wave from 10 hertz to 10 kilohertz and I swept that in one second and then I set the divisions on my scope to be equal to a tenth of a division or a tenth of a second per division such that every time it swept across the screen one screen swipe would be 10 hertz to 10 kilohertz and then I could adjust the um EQ controls and look at the amplitudes and the amplitudes would basically follow the frequency response of my simulations. And what was cool is it was exactly odd. Like my spice simulations and the, and reality were one to one. They looked almost identical. So super happy about that. You know, spice simulations in reality should be a short sci-fi like uh, story <laughs> with the spice eyes glowing and stuff matching the simulations. Dude. Um, I, I picked up a book um, for Christmas that you is... You know a, how to read? Uh, yeah, I'm no, it's, a, it's surprising, trust me. <laughs> um, I picked up a book about Spice Simulation for LT Spice over uh, over Christmas, and I've been playing around with LT Spice. Just because what I've noticed is I use P-Spice mainly for my stuff, but I don't have a full copy of it, and it's kind of janky um, the way I've been using it. And a lot of people really speak kindly of LT Spice and every time I've used it I've kind of felt like eh, not really sure about it but I was like you know what I'm going to get this book and I'm going to start working through examples and now that I've been playing with it I actually really like it uh, there's a there's a lot of 
I don't know. There's a lot of annoying things about it that P Spice does that I wish LT Spice would. Like if you if you plot a, a, a anything in P Spice, you can select the wave and then you you you're allowed to do mathematical functions on it, which you can do in LT Spice, but but you don't get all of the nice ones that P Spice does. Like if you want to find the RMS or the like, I guess the traveling RMS of a wave, you just RMS and then parentheses whatever you want, and then it just you plot the RMS. But in in LT Spice, like you don't get those higher level functions. You can do just things like add and subtract and multiply and things. So you could do an RMS, but you'd have to kind of calculate it yourself. And they, and they have a they have a, fa- a handful of other um I mean they have ways for you to look at RMS where like you can control click on a line and it brings up like a little command box that says here's the RMS of this wave but it only it, but it calculates the RMS of what you're looking at. So if you're hmm. zoomed in you get a different RMS value of if you're zoomed out or if you're trying to find the RMS of like a um uh, a rectifier circuit that has charging then it's strange like you want to look at rms based off of time p spice does that really well lt spice doesn't seem to do that well i'm not but then again i'm still somewhat new to it so you're on chapter two. <laughs> oh yeah 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 um <laughs> the, the the biggest thing i think that threw me off with lt spice is the um uh the user interface is a little clunky and when i say little i mean a lot clunky it's it just it it's like why should a why should a simulation or spice program run like a drafting program? And it feels like LT spice runs like a drafting program where Hmm. it has the whole thing where you have to like, I'm selecting move. I'm selecting my item. I'm Ah. accepting like why it's a spice simulation. Like just let me throw down a resistor and like connect wires, (laughs) but whatever (laughs) I can, I can get past that. It's just a matter of using it. It just doesn't make any sense to me why it wouldn't need Uh, to be that way. Yeah. Even Eagle is not, that drafting like yeah i know what you're yeah. talking about like autocad uh when i learned AutoCAD, autocad 2000 is like that like like i'm going to do this to this and yes i want to do that <laughs> yeah 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 well and fusion 360 is kind of like that and i i really like the way fusion 360 handles it like if i'm in draft mode that all makes sense uh but with with lt spice it just i don't know like there's certain things about it that are kind of janky in that sense mm-hmm. and and the and the, the quick commands are all weird like why is f7 wire why isn't w wire like f7 is a weird thing that my hand isn't used to being on i play games so wsaad like those should be the hottest keys out there for like working on something you know <laughs> like <laughs> and and in um uh, P-Spice, W is wire. It's just like you click W and like, okay, you're drawing a schematic. What is the one thing that all schematics have and you're going to be doing a lot of? You're going to be wiring, right? Like have mm-hmm. wire be the easiest thing to get to. And it feels like LT-Spice, you have to like click the wire button and then click the one thing you want to wire to the other thing. It just feels really slow and clunky because of that. But then again, you know, it's not like they're making circuit simulation for the masses and they have to like fine tune that stuff they're gonna they're making it's free also right yeah yeah it's free but but yeah no so far i I really like it and i think i'm gonna start migrating over to it um for all of my stuff um and as i go through this book um i want to start looking into uh sharing some more 
things I learn about spice simulation because what I'm excited this book goes into nonlinear circuits and later on it starts talking about um, nonlinear current draw in circuits and distortion effects on your on your signals based off of that and how to simulate and identify those but it also goes into full system design where you're looking at your power supply draw and you're simulating the effects of that and transients based off of like Ooh. i'm hitting this yeah it's kind of cool it's good stuff so uh, that's like, something i can use yeah yeah because i don't you know i i barely simulate anything because it's just a different world of designing stuff right right and but i'm like well one thing i'd like to make sure is my power supply stuff is designed right mm-hmm. and we were talking about earlier like the badge stuff design i'd made like i designed a pcb just testing that stuff yeah but it'd be nice to be able to simulate it besides going, oh, yeah, I'm going to plunk down 100 bucks and hopefully in two weeks it works right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, simulation can help prove that, you know. And and I, I love when, when the circuit you do, you actually create, follows the spice simulation. And, and I was like... I, don't don't take this as like being me being super arrogant, but it always feels somewhat parallel. What was it? Was it Neptune or Uranus? I can't remember. One of those planets was discovered mathematically. It was one of the first like major scientific discoveries that was based not on observation. It was based on math. Like we observed other planets the way they move and they had very odd movements at some portion in their travel. Uh, in their orbits and the only thing that could explain them having those is the presence of another celestial body and so they calculated that the planet existed before observing it and then went and pointed their telescopes and actually observed it and I feel that spice simulation is kind of that way where it's like you have an idea in your head you do the calculations you run your simulations you get your plots then you actually make the thing and it always feels like I discovered a planet you know even if yeah, like yeah. your one little filter works out right. so I, I was I Wikipedia Uranus <laughs> I, I'm sure you and, did um, but my my thing about it is um, so I clicked exploration to see if I could find out if it, I don't think it was Uranus because they don't talk about it there but it's just a line that says in 1986 NASA's Voyager 2 interplanetary probe encountered Uranus <laughs> I'm like encountered <laughs> you know they knew it was going there so is it to me, encountered means like it was an unexpected event that happened. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think that's the wrong word to use there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. I could there's be completely a planet. wrong. I just think encountered it is something that's an unexpected kind of event of you meaning something. Um, someone's going to be like, uh, actually, it's blah, blah, <laughs> excuse blah, blah, blah. me. Yeah. So it was uh, Neptune. In fact, there's an entire Wikipedia page called discovery of neptune in the first sentence was the planet of neptune was was mathematically predicted before it was directly observed there's also another planet that they're trying to find that is same thing it's past pluto it's an exoplanet which is not a planet i mean it's an exoplanet that's somewhere out there and um they just don't know where to look for it yet but they they definitely do observe some kind of gravitational pull out there and so they're looking for it. I think it's like called Planet Planet Actually, yeah. X. You can call it Planet X because it would be the tenth planet <laughs> discovered well, no. in year twenty. Pluto X-X. was Planet Nine. Was Planet Nine right? 
Hmm? Wait, what was that? Was Pluto was yeah. Pluto was Planet Nine, but not it's not Planet Nine anymore, so you can't call it Planet X. Right. Well Because it, it'd be Planet Nine. And and it's you know the reason why they made it not nine made it not a planet. And yeah, I'm sorry. You can't like necessarily make it not a planet. There was a council that got together that discussed like what are the requirements for a body to be considered a planet, and Pluto ended up meeting two of the three requirements. Yeah. And uh, one of the reasons why it would be confusing if Pluto was a planet is there's a lot of other bodies that could be called planets, and we, the the universe or, or our galaxy. Our solar system, I should say, would have a lot more planets in it if we allowed Pluto to be a planet. You know, so I, I don't know. I, I support that. I think it makes sense. I, th- yeah, it I think sense. what it was was uh, one of the rules that it didn't pass. Uh, I think it, w- one of them is it has to be spherical. Uh, so that means it, ha- it has to be a body greater than 500 miles in diameter, I think. the One of the other ones, I think it has to s- orbit the sun. And then the third one is that it has to clear its entire path. Like, its path can't have anything in in the way. And that's the one that it hasn't completed yeah. yet. Because there's a lot of objects that are really close to its size right? that are in that orbit. That's right, yeah. All the other planets have cleared their orbits of other space stuff. We'll get you one time, Moon. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, so there, there was actually one other thing I wanted to uh, talk about on uh, that Hellhound preamp that I got. So I, I ended up going with a $10 switch that's in it, and normally I wouldn't put anything at all that expensive in it. But I found... Okay, so I found a, a family of switches that all, like, fit the bill that I wanted. And they're all really expensive, but they're really nice, like, three-position toggle switches. So you can have, like, different tonal options and things with them. So is it got a up, mid, down? Yeah, yeah. It's a three-position, okay. and it's an on, on, on switch. Okay, yeah. So it's a 4PDT three position which is super unique so it's it's two dpdt's that if you connect two of the pins together then you can have each dpdt has one input and three outputs like mm-hmm. that's a really really specific switch like well it was like when i was getting the switches for the wagon yeah and like yeah those you were complaining about ten dollar switch these were like twenty four dollars a pop Ugh. but they had to have very specific um you know how they connected up when you because it was like a three position there's a no four four position three pole it's very similar style switch yeah but like i needed it to be like i had to have a family because i had to have all the switches had to look the same right because i had a different right. requirement i had like four different switch styles and they all had to match <laughs> yeah because i have a, i have four switches in this thing not four of the ten dollar ones i only have one of the ten dollar ones but i have four switches in them and luckily i was able to get all the switches with all the same battens with all the same like skirts on them they all sit off the pcb by exactly the same amount the only thing that sucks is one of them had to be ten dollars because of that but the thing about this switch that makes it really really nice is it switches three different modes and those modes in either engage or disengage different Zener diodes that clip the signal. 
so okay. if you're if if you're clipping the signal, then your total amplitude drops significantly. So I have one half of this switch that switches in different diodes, and then the other half of the switch switches in different resistors that are in series with uh, my potentiometer, that is my master volume. So as I flip the switches, I can keep the volumes relatively the same, even though the amplitude is actually dropping due to the clipping. Uh, I can flip in things such that you don't get like huge pops that go through the signal. Yeah, well, or that, or if you switch from one to the other, your basically your output is the same no matter what you're clipping. Exactly, and it's not perfect because it's based on previous uh, settings earlier on. It's just with this switch, I can make it a lot less drastic because my highest level of clipping is 3.9 volts, and my smallest level of clipping, which is no clipping, could be up to like. 40 volts so think of like a 10x amplitude increase from flipping mm. a switch like you could you could cause damage to circuitry later on so i wanted to make sure that when you flipped a mode it would automatically readjust itself and really the only way i can think about think of doing that with high voltage capabilities <laughs> is to buy a 10 dollar switch so it's like ah that sucks so, if anyone wants to check out the switch, it is 1004P6T1B4M7RE. It would not be a MacFab Engineering Podcast episode without a long part number. <laughs> <laughs> check it out. That's always my one of my favorite parts of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that we, we just like off these ridiculous part, part numbers. numbers. Actually, yeah. you know what's funny is I've looked at these switches so many times that I could break down that that. And tell you what those numbers it's like me mean and, and Panasonic all that resistors. Yeah, I could tell you what like ERJs. Yeah, yeah, the T one is a six certain kind of series. and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I know the RE at the end is gold plated pins. We should do a podcast. Uh, we should do a future podcast on like we should pick a series of like what we use a lot and do a breakdown of the part numbers. Oh, that'd be fun. And like that's the this is the like the only podcast that people will be like yeah I want that <laughs> we're going to talk about data sheets for a whole episode <laughs> we've done a lot of that and I'm yeah. there's more to talk about that's for sure yeah. all right so man we're almost at an hour so let's go ahead and run to the RFO yeah Leon, done, let's rip to the RFOs okay so this being the last episode for 2019 y'all will hear it. In the new year, in 2020, um, we're going to go do a quick overview of like our f personal favorite podcast episodes of 2019. Um, so I'll start with mine. Mine favorite was the Discrete Atomic Lufa Control, which was actually the first episode of the year where we had Ben and Chris on to talk about 3D printers and loofahs, which was probably one of the craziest podcasts we've ever talked about. Like, just the topics were so varied. We talked about, like, a, a 3D printer that can print a whole room and then, like, genetically modifying loofahs to, like, make watermelons and organs. <laughs> That's like right. Like, human organs. Yeah. That was that was crazy. And you know what's nuts? Uh, that was recorded in the bomb shelter in Houston. Um, and just to think that that was only a year ago, a lot has happened in this this year. Yes. Yeah. Was that recorded in the bomb shelter? Yeah, because Ben Heck and Chris Kraft I remember sitting on the couches in the uh, in the bomb shelter. Huh? Was that this year? Because that bomb shelter went away in Harvey. 
That must not have been this year then. Why does this podcast say January 2nd, 2019 then? It must have gotten uploaded at the wrong time. Because <laughs> we recorded that in a bomb That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, we recorded that shit in a bomb shelter, dude. Because that's when you and... Um, that's when you guys came... Uh, they flew down to go fishing and you guys went on your B-17. That was, that ha that was like two years ago. No. I swear. Yeah, because you were here in Houston. Yeah, I, yeah, and I was here in Houston in January. That no, I wasn't. Yeah, you're because it was in the summer. No, you're totally right. Why does this podcast say uploaded 2019? Did we do? No, we didn't. No, we did this one in person. Yeah, we did this in person. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's not that for me then, because clearly the blog is incorrect. Yeah. So I'm also looking. I'm like, what is going on with the blog? Well, if this is episode 153, then that would be a year ago, right? Yeah, because it said, yeah, I'm looking at our schedule and 153 was then. What? No, we did another episode then with them. Does simulation match the reality episode 75? That might have been. It says no episode one. 153 was Ben Heck and uh, Chris Craft. Yeah, but episode I, 75 was also Ben and Chris Craft. That might have been the one I was thinking of. Which one? 75. Yeah, you're thinking that one. That one was the one where we were in the bomb shelter. That's July of 2017, which is a month before the bomb shelter got rained out. Flooded. Yeah. Yes. Okay, we're not super crazy. No, just me. No, I thought we were... I'm like, wait. We didn't record this one in the bomb shelter, but I could swear... I can imagine my mind looking at Chris Kraft talking about loofahs. I swear, like, I swear we were in there. Like, I could see it in my head right now. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Isn't <laughs> memories weird? It's really weird, yeah. Um, dang. <laughs> it's, that was only, like, that was only a year ago. We already forgot where we recorded it. Oh, my but yeah, God. Yeah, we had to record. Yeah, because here's past two years. Both were last seen on episode 75. Does the simulation match reality? That's the one that was in the... That's the one bomb where shelter. you went fishing with them down in Galveston and they came to the bomb shelter. Yep. 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 Yeah. Well, in this case, the simulation did not match re reality. Hey, speaking of, of bomb shelter recordings, um, one, one uh, or a pair of guests we had on that we should get on again is the Idea Tank. Oh, man. What are they up they to? They were fun. That one was really, really fun. That was... Uh, it was something with Zimas. Uh, yeah, they brought <laughs> they brought a they six, brought us Zimas. They brought six the packs drink. of Zimas. Yeah, they were, I I think it was because I lost a bet and they they paid my uh, my bet yeah they paid off. your fee they paid yeah. my fee with Zimas <laughs> and we took a picture we took a picture under the uh, the uh, ET photo or the ET yes. picture that was up there. Yeah, I wonder if that survived the flood. It probably did. It, it was more so. than six feet off the ground. <laughs> That was uh that was a piece of artwork right there. Oh, it was gorgeous. Yeah, it was like a fully like crocheted or knitted ET or something. Yeah. It was freaking great. It was amazingly bad. It's what it was. So good. So good. Um they haven't had a Twitter update since October 2018. So I'll have to reach out to them and see if they want to be on the podcast. Yeah. I that, was that one was really really fun. So so uh, one of the other ones from this year that I think I, I'd, I'd pick for one of the favorite podcasts was the 
uh, Ken and Chip Gracie of Parallax, which was episode 166, so a few weeks after the uh, Ben and Chris one, where we talked about the uh, Prop 2 chip and really semiconductor design as a whole. And I just thought that one was super interesting and really fun. Yeah, uh, Chip and Ken are super passionate about that industry. Yeah, go listen to the episode and you'll see why. <laughs> yeah. I just wish we had better audio for that because, like, Chip was, like, eating his microphone the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was he was into it. Because he was so excited to talk about this yeah. that all we saw, because he was had a talk with his webcam mic on his laptop to do that one. Yeah. And, so, and he had to get really close because if he tried to increase the gain too much, we got too much room noise. Right. So he had to it gained way down. So all we could see was the up lower part of his nose and his chin and mouth because he had it up on his laptop like lid. Yeah, it was so it was talk. awkward. <laughs> it was really funny. And he talked a lot. Yes. But it was like it was all super great. That was amazing. Yeah. That was a that so. was a really fun one. And then uh, you have an honorable mention. I do have an honorable mention because I think that this one has had some sticking power. Episode 194, which was just a few weeks ago or two months ago or whatever, uh, and that was called The Fourth Rule of Robotics. And one of the reasons why I really like this is because in the episode we described the fourth rule of robotics is that all robots should have googly eyes on them. And ever since we release that episode whenever we post things in our slack channel we get called out anytime we have not photoshopped googly eyes on the items i don't think it's 194 it wasn't 194 i thought i grabbed that from earlier 194 was jerry okay maybe i got the wrong number it was not that long ago no oh 192 sorry not 194 it's in farther ago yeah, by two. Ah, yes. Two. That was actually also the episode that you made the... F that was the first time you ever made a featured image for the podcast. <laughs> and it has googly 192 eyes. episodes. <laughs> I've made a lot of the things that are in the... Uh, the, the in the notes, in the, yes. Yeah, uh, in the image, too. I just haven't yeah, made the image. the image. Yeah, yeah but like you, I'm like... Steven's like, I got a great idea. I'm like, give it to me in 900 by 400 pixels. <laughs> it's gorgeous. It's absolutely it amazing. amazing. Yeah. So thanks for everyone for calling us out on the Slack channel for not putting googly eyes on anything we uh, post on there. Yep. I like the the fact that, uh, oh man, what episode? My honorable mention would be, it was recent. It was uh, let, uh, not into the let, loaf. Let episode. the loaf out, right? No, it was it was the not letting the oh not in, what was it not enjoying the loaf? No, <laughs> it was like two o two. Yeah, it's a really great uh, not, not into, into the, the meatloaf. Not into the meatloaf. Yeah, because I got to actually use a picture of the album cover. Right, and I'm like, yep, I'm gonna Photoshop a, P a PCB on that and ship it. <laughs> oh, you know what? I don't see any googly eyes on it, dude. Actually, someone called me out and said I should have googly eyes on that loaded chopper. Because of course they did. Yep. You, we we continuously violate the fourth law. Yes, all the time. Well, I don't know if a motorcycle is a robot. That motorcycle has like a a, a dead horse's head on it. It totally yeah. needs Google's googly eyes. Googly eyes on it. <laughs> have you ever looked at that picture and see how the guy's riding that motorcycle? Yeah, it it's sense. it looks really uncomfortable. Yeah. 
<laughs> he's riding it with just his groin. That's what he's doing. <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah. we would like to uh, call out the list of guests that we had in uh, 2019 and uh, give a thank you to everyone who's come on. So, uh, Parker, why don't why don't we uh, take turns? Go one then the other. I'll I'll go ahead. Well, hopefully, and... I get the easy ones to pronounce. <laughs> yeah, like then he's rearranging them all right yeah, now. Right now. <laughs> well, okay, well then, why don't you start off? Because that's an, that's okay. an easy one. Okay, so thank you, Ben Heck, for being on the podcast, and thank you, Chris Craft. Thank you, Cliff. Shit, <laughs> I think it's checked. Checked. Thank you, Jason Sarundalo. Thank you, Al Williams. Thank you, Christopher Howell. Thank you, Phil Breshan. Bresnahan. Bresnahan. See, you get to pronounce them all at the very beginning of the podcast, so you at least <laughs> have these in your memory bank somewhere. Yeah. I like it. I like how you call it a memory bank, yeah. Um, thank you, Dylan Nichols. Thank you, Ken and Chip Gracie. Thank you, Kevin Beller. Thank you, Danny Rankin. Hey, thanks, Roz. Thanks, Roz. Uh, thank you, Nicholas Peter Chelopov. Chelyapov. Chelyapov. <laughs> thank I've you. I've gotten all the hard ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did the order wrong. This is great. Thank you, Chrissy Meyer. Thank you, Greg Paulson. Thank you, Shruti Sura. Thank you, Jared Hayes. Thanks, Zap, Hyron, and the And Not XOR team. Thank you, Joe Grand. Thanks, Mike Geyer. Thank you, Jeff Garoon. Thank you, Daniel Heinzich. And thank you, David Gunnis. Yeah, we we totally screwed up Gunnis uh, in the show notes beforehand, and he and he called us out because I because I actually spelled it Guinness, and yeah, he you was put like, Guinness yeah, down. no. You got beer in the brain. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and making 2019 a fantastic year. Yes. And so as we close out 2019, let's make 2020 the best year ever for the MacFab Engineering Podcast, Stephen. Whoop. Yep. So thank you all to our listeners, our guests. Um, have a wonderful New Year's, everyone. And let's make 2020 awesome. We'll, we'll see you in 2020. Yes. You know what? Let's not even do the normal outro. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listeners and guests for downloading and being on our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at AnalogENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, check that, that. Click that subscribe button. I guess you can check it out, too, but yeah, click it. Hit that bell. That way you get the latest MEP episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen, as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.